Hey there, this is Zachary Thatcher recording from Brooklyn. It's been a while again since I recorded my last podcast. It's been kind of hard to uh, get my focus while dealing with this new house. Anyways, I want to get caught up with my essays and then maybe start doing something new um, in the future. Who knows what will happen? So um, I've been writing essays on Medium and then recording them, essentially. So this is... Um, one of the, really, this is kind of the final one for the COVID journey, at least, and then you'll get some other stuff later on. This is, uh, this can be read at medium.com slash Thatcher hyphen report. No middle T in my last name, but you probably know that because there are not that many people listening to this, but I'm so thankful you are. Okay, so this essay is called Day 7, and it's from June here in Brooklyn. In March 2020, the pandemic smashed into Manhattan like a world-killing meteor. Everything shut down. No gym, no bars or restaurants, no synagogues. Getting basics like groceries was scary. I had to stay inside, but when I was inside, I was alone. Less than two days into the March lockdown, I learned I was not built for solitary confinement. My small, overpriced city apartment with no outdoor space felt like a cell, minus the yard and dining hall, but with all the dread of getting shanked by an invisible menace. Friends whose parents at summer homes fled to them. I joined their exodus because I could, thanks to my friend Andrew. I drove through the night from downtown Manhattan to his farm in Massachusetts. After a panicky stay at a highway hotel, I moved to a nearby apartment filled with junkyard furniture. It was literally in a barn. It was kind of this rough studio apartment carved out of a former sheep house. It had no oven. It did have a lumpy bed. I mean, who has a lumpy bed? It's so crazy. Could they just get a real bed? But it was warm. And it was wet and cold that March, so I was happy for that. They had pretty good Wi-Fi. Uh, the hot water was awesome. There were bed linens. There was a desk. And most importantly, it was just a short walk to my buddy's farm. The owner, um, barn lord, I guess, we agreed to an off-the-books cash rental. I won't tell you for how much. It was reasonable for just two weeks. Um, but then in the slow-motion action sequence of the early pandemic, this eventually turned into three months. And from the barn, I ran my little shop, Thatcher Interactive. I wrote ruminative essays like this one. Um, and I ambled the woods of this beautiful little town called Carlisle, uh, which is outside Concord, Massachusetts. And um, I volunteered at my buddy's farm. So why did I volunteer at the farm? Uh, I like it. I like being outside. I like being physical, even though it kicks my butt. Also, field work was the only way I could interact with humans. And I wasn't very good at it, but I didn't hurt anybody or myself too badly. And I did, I was pretty good at weeding. Andrew, my friend Andrew's agricultural life has been my country escape for as long as he's been farming and for as long as I've been in New York. That's about two decades. I've always enjoyed helping him out with the farm chores over the years. I knew seating in the green room was easy. Transplanting, where you sit in a little chair attached to the rear end of a moving tractor and you thrust seedlings into the dabbled soil, that takes dexterity and speed. I don't have those, but weeding is meditative. It's repetitious. I learned to enjoy it because it's a task I can understand and I can finish it. Dredging unwanted plants scratches that OCD itch you get when vacuuming. Do I need to clean the space behind the furniture no one sees? How about the top of the door frames? Right, you get it. After making a bed of carrots as clean and uniform as possible, I feel a tired delight with the work. I'm no master grower who feeds hundreds of families nutrient-rich organic produce, 
but I can assist with the process as I, in turn, live off the camaraderie and fresh food. So hashtag farm life lasted from a muddy March into the dry summer July bloom. By then, the local Airbnbs had dried up. There are only two in this relatively affluent area, kind of affluent rural area, and they don't like short-term rentals, and there just wasn't anything out there, even though people have tons of space, huge houses, tons of barns, empty. So I had moved by then, by July, I had moved from the barn, which was crappy but really convenient, and I moved to a much worse place that was this in-law apartment off a ranch house that was last decorated in the Reagan administration. I'm pretty sure they voted for Reagan too. And uh, there was this huge framed photo of a church in the bedroom. And was that a warning? A promise of divine delight? I don't know. But, uh, but uh, by July 4th, actually, that place wasn't available either. And that place is just really crummy, a lot more expensive. And um, I think I've been traumatized against shag carpeting for the rest of my life. But seriously, at the time, it was pretty nerve wracking. I had been about four months sheltering. It was COVID. It was crazy. I had to leave. But where was I going to go? New York City wasn't getting quite as devastated as it had been, but it was still very bad. And I needed some place that was low density where I could drive to. I didn't want to stay with my parents who are much older in Massachusetts. I couldn't imagine really going to California. That didn't seem any better where my brother and my dad live. So really my options, as far as I could tell, were uh, upstate New York or around New England, somewhere rural, which is really what I wanted. I needed it. I needed something rural. I, maybe I still do. But at the time, I was just stuck. I just had nothing. And my apartment was gone. Uh, my stuff was, the few things I had was in storage. It was not good. Then another close childhood friend named Jesse moved from Brooklyn to Vermont. And that was kind of a surprise because he has a Brooklyn-born wife. Uh, they have two little girls born in Brooklyn. And they left an apartment in the middle of everything and moved to a massive 18th century farmhouse on five acres of land with all these uh, outbuildings, they call them little barns, and really pretty sunset views right near Lake Champlain. It, it was spectacular. And just immediately they invited me to join them even though they had only just moved in themselves and they were drowning in boxes and all the craziness with new home logistics while taking care of two small kids it's a pandemic my friend explained one evening it's hard to make plans stay as long as you like generosity distills into a potent form of gratitude when you're vulnerable i am more thankful to these two friends and their families than i can ever express they really saved me so i drove four hours northwest from the Massachusetts farm up to a little hamlet really outside of Burlington, Vermont. And I settled into what was a small apartment attached to the main farmhouse. And that was an extension built in the 1960s, I think. It was private and it was very close to the family, but I had my own space. I'd say it was more um, Nixon Carter administration than Reagan, but it was free and near friends. And it was just great. I was really happy. Uh, there was a college-style futon on the floor, like one of those little sofa things that turns into a futon like right on the floor. Uh, there was an old ratty sofa in the living room and a scratched-up old oak desk that I provisioned from an outbuilding. I scrubbed the bathroom to a high gloss and vacuumed everything, even the ceilings where spiders had abandoned their traps, like these little wispy ruins. I made it my home. I enjoyed living in northern Vermont among my family, among, with my friend's family and all of his relatives who came and went. We ate group meals every single day. We listened to the breathless and occasionally plotted stories from their four-year-old. 
I introduced their six-year-old to soft-serve maple ice cream, which they call creamy up there. And I also taught her how to identify a crew cab pickup truck from a standard cab. The girls, like their parents, are funny and smart and easy to laugh. I was comforted, but I didn't have much work to keep me busy back then. And at the end of the day, I was their house guest. I was graceful, I was grateful, I was safe, but I was alone. It was lonely. By mid-August, a frisson, I don't know how to pronounce that word, it's French, it means chill. By mid-August, a frisson came with the night air. It was no longer light by dinnertime anymore. Maple leaves on the tallest boughs bleached blonde. This means one thing to a sentimental Jew like myself. The autumn high holidays were coming, which they are right now. It's a year ago that I'm talking about. The high holidays for Jews is really a month-long cycle of holidays for celebration and introspection and self-awareness and sobriety. It is not as much fun as the uh, non-Jewish New Year's, but it's very meaningful. So Jewish memory pulled at me with a child's loose grip that suddenly grew tight. But I was up in Vermont. I needed something, some change. I had been six months on the road, no glance in the rear view, not interested in going back to Manhattan. But where would I go next? It was almost getting cold now. All throughout this journey, I'd scouted places for the long term. I stayed in Airbnbs in East Hampton, Massachusetts, which is a little town in the Pioneer Valley near colleges like Mount Holyoke and UMass Amherst. I slept in a backyard cabin of the leader of a Jewish co-housing project in central Vermont, coincidentally. I stayed in a series of always expensive, always really disappointing Airbnbs because Airbnb is terrible. Uh, I was in Hudson, New York, Beacon, New York, Terrytown, New York, which are all little towns along the Hudson River. And none of that made sense in COVID because in all of them, it was the same story. I was alone. I didn't know anybody anywhere. In the early days of September, as the sun slipped out like the tide, I packed my car, hugged my friends goodbye, and drove to Brooklyn. I said I'd be back in a few weeks. It's now been 10 months. This kicked off my next and last phase of COVID life, living in a furnished apartment while hunting for a long-term situation. So yeah, I was back in the city, but not really, because Brooklyn is very different than Manhattan. First, I slept in a friend's apartment for about two weeks and that they let me kind of crash in because they had moved themselves to Asheville, North Carolina. But that was only for about a week and a half. Then I spent two months, which turned into another two months, which, event- which eventually stretched to six months And when I was living in a furnished parlor floor of a brownstone in Borm Hill, Brooklyn. It's just a beautiful gem-like 19th century neighborhood near lots of amenities and infrastructure, but it's also ruthlessly segregated. I mean, crazy segregated. Affluent white people live in multi-million dollar private brownstones and disenfranchised black people live in enormous housing projects. It could not be more stark. Each racial group shops and dines in separate spaces. It felt like the Jim Crow South, but not really because this is America everywhere, all the time. So it was a pretty neighborhood, but not an uncomplicated one. Almost every day for those six months of living in that furnished rental, which in a strange kind of mirror of my rural six months, I was now looking at places in the borough um, or online or in person uh, to live. I I needed to move something permanent. I toured over 50 apartments. I I didn't even keep track. It could have been more than 50. I went crazy. I looked in Park Slope, Fort Greene, Borm Hill, Carroll Gardens, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Crown Heights, and Prospect Heights. 
these are neighborhoods I somewhat knew and were somewhat accessible to what I really knew best, which is downtown Manhattan, where I've lived since I was 25. I browsed over 500 website listings. That's, that's just an estimate. It probably was 1,000. I created lots of spreadsheets. I had lists. I had maps. I biked. I walked. And I took the subway all over the borough. Finally, through luck and ignorance and a frugal 10 years of living where I saved my ducats, I located, financed, and bought a cute 1920 house in an up-and-coming part of Brooklyn, shall we say. This neighborhood is actually well-integrated, and not, co not coincidentally, it's affordable to middle-class and working people. Feels right. We do not have... There are maybe subsidized housing and some rich people, but it's nothing like uh, more affluent parts of Brooklyn. It truly is an integrated neighborhood, and I like that. It feels good to you. So... I'm recording this right here from uh, the southwestern uh, corner of Crown Heights below Eastern Parkway. It's kind of on the other side of the more August northern neighborhood, which is much fancier, but the southern side is what I can afford, and it's totally fine. It's great. London plane trees with their scaly elephantine bark, they stretch over the rooftops. A wide swath of sky unfolds since there are a few high-rises to block the view. People almost always say hello to you when you walk by on the sidewalk. And my neighbors now going from west to east, there's Freddie, Velta, Donette, Magdalia, and Hahana. They're friendly, they're welcoming, they, they give me advice and uh, say hi to me. Yeah, but about the house. So I bought the house from a developer before it hit the market. It was being renovated. I, you know, kind of like, uh, not really, but sort of like the Jewish-Israeli mafia, I found out about it. And it's a great deal, the seller's broker hissed like an Edenic snake. You'll love it. It's perfect. So that sounds great. But the day I moved in, I discovered the developer hadn't really finished the house. Surprise! It was almost like they had just uh, run out of here before they leave, as soon as they got my money. Moving to a half-finished house was like listening to the start of an amazing rock anthem that has you pumped and thrilled with its rolling drums and guitar rift, and then just as it's about to... Silence. Then the light shut off. Then you realize you're cold and dehydrated. I mean, this place was crazy. It was so exciting to move in is what I'm trying to say. But then you're like, oh my God, what have I moved into? Okay, here's one thing. All of the closets were empty. No hanging poles, no shelves, nothing. So all of my clothes were piled on the floor until I hired very expensive people to build out the closets. That took two months because, of course, I had to shop around and learn about it and everything. The backyard to this very moment could be the setting for a zombie film because of all the weeds and construction debris and that's out there. The concrete patio was very hastily poured. It poured. I think they hired some demented children, gave them a few beers, and then told them to do the work. The front door didn't shut tight because there was no weather stripping. Up until now, I thought the only correlation with the words weather and stripping was for woodsy pole dancing. Okay, terrible joke, but literally I'd never heard of weather stripping before. All I knew is I couldn't shut my front door. There's more. The basement flooded every time it rained. Um, it took a long time to figure out why. It turns out that the pipes were poorly uh, constructed, so they were too close together. Pretty much every single kitchen appliance was broken. I have these things called splits, which are kind of like modern day HVAC units. None of those worked. And if you wanted to like have like a toilet paper, that seems like something you, you kind of want to use uh, once a day at least, or a towel. Nope, you couldn't hang those up or put them anywhere in the bathrooms because there was no hardware installed for like little towel bars. The rest of the bathrooms were done, but they just didn't do the towel bars. It's, why? That's weird. 
And then on, after that, the house is just empty. It's a house. It's like uh, including the basement, it's 2,400 square feet. Without the basement, it's 1,760 square feet. I had previously lived in a 600 square foot apartment and I threw out more than half of, of it. The sofa, um, I never really had a dining table, uh, just a breakfast bar that was built in. I basically don't own anything. So I don't have a sofa. I don't have a love seat. I don't have a bookcase. I don't have a dining side or end table. I don't have a console. I don't have any rugs. I have none of the furnishings that comfort a house. What I had in storage for my jettisoned apartment was an old bed and a desk, pots and pans, boxes of books, and a prized Barcelona chair. It was enough to maybe fill a studio apartment, certainly not a three-bedroom house with a finished basement. Woe is me, right? I own a house. It's palatial compared to my last apartment. As they say in business, there's plenty of upside with limited downside. I'll abate the flooding, which by now, I wrote this essay a little while ago, I have abated the flooding. I'm so, so delighted about that. And then I now have an interior designer, um, a carpenter, and we've been uh, working on some built-ins. It's all cost way too much money, and it's kind of dumb, and I don't think anybody should ever hire an interior designer. That was kind of a waste of money, but I did it, and the house is starting to come together. My neighbors have only had to scold me once, uh, fairly gently, for not sweeping my um, cement area in the front. I had no idea it was my responsibility to keep the sidewalk clean, but then I cleaned it, sort of like my OCD vacuuming. And now I am cleaning it regularly, probably not as much as they'd like, but I'm doing it. Okay, but to save the best news for last, and all of this housing tumult, I've been dating a woman. She's my girlfriend, I can't just say dating. And I am excited to tell you that her name is Emily. I made her last Hanukkah when I was living in that um, furnished rental in Borm Hill. And Hanukkah, you can kind of think of as like the twinkling winter coda to the very somber and long fall holidays. Look, to be honest, sometimes she and I make a lot of sense to each other and it's like a symphony. Other times it's one of those polytonal off-key cacophonies of 20th century music but we're trying and she's great and I'm, I'm delighted I hope she's patient for me and I'm learning there's something magnificent in trying together that makes a music of its own so yeah since rushing to my car the late afternoon of mid-march 2020 with bags of clothing humped on my back tears blurring my vision after living in over 10 apartments across three states for 13 months I have now found a place to to rest. It's my day seven, my Shabbat. If it's the trying that makes more music than the having, then today, this summer, I can finally sing a lyric in my little off-key voice, home. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. I'm going to have a few more coming out. And if you want to read them, go to medium.com slash thatcher hyphen report cheers <laughs>